So, our outline for this morning will be on the screen. We have three stanzas. First stanza is verses 1 through 10. And that's about Jesus showing that he's extending the gospel message to, he's extending his family, right? It's not just for the Jewish nation, but for all the Gentile nations. That includes you and I. So he's extending his family. And then we see familiar tension that we've seen in the first seven chapters, this tension between the religious rulers that want to continue to live disobediently and have their own way. And so there's this familiar tension between Jesus and the establishment, if you will. And then the failed comprehension of the disciples when he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Um, and, and they think he's talking about the loaves of bread again. And they miss it. They fail to comprehend what Jesus is trying to show them and teach them about himself. So let's jump into the first stanza, if you will, about the family extension. Let's skim through verses 1 through 10, shall we? In those days, there's again a large crowd, and he called his disciples because he felt compassion. Now, if you remember, we, we had the feeding of 5,000 just a couple chapters ago in Mark chapter 6, right? And he felt compassion then, and he feels compassion now for the people because they've been with him for three days, and they're, they have nothing to eat, so arguably they ran out of food. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they're going to faint because many have come from a great distance. And so he said to them, but the disciples said to Jesus, where, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? It's a desolate place, similar to the last occurrence in Mark chapter 6. And he said, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And so he directed all the people to sit down, and he gave thanks with the, for the seven loaves, and he broke them and passed them out through his disciples. And they had a few small fish in verse 7, and he blessed those as well. And he ordered that those be served also. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And there was leftovers, seven large baskets full. And about 4,000 men were there, and he sent them away. And then he got into a boat and came to Dalmanutha. In last week when Pastor Dave was in uh, Mark chapter 7, look at verse 24, just to, so you remember that Jesus had left, and he came in verse 24 and went to the region of Tyre, and that's Gentile region, right? So he left the Jewish region, and he went to Tyre. And then in verse 31, he left Tyre and came through Sidon and then went to Decapolis, which is now, uh, or still, a Gentile area. So Jesus is... Um, fulfilling his mission to bring the gospel message to everybody, not just the Jewish nation. And Pastor Dave said he was in, Pastor Dave said last week in verse 25 that, uh, that Jesus was intentional about that, that he, that he got up and he went in verse 24, and that went is, is uh, with intentionality, right? And this is all Genesis chapter 12 kind of stuff. When God called Abraham to, to grow a nation from Abraham and say that all peoples will be blessed through you, Right? And if anybody, uh, whoever blesses you, I will bless them. And whoever curses you, I will curse them. And all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. And so Christ is just continuing to fulfill God's desire to bless all the nations. And so that's what he's modeling for us here by feeding these 4,000 in a Gentile area to show that his provision is not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles as well. We know Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before Christ ascended. One of the last things he said in Acts chapter 8, he says that you and I will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And so that's what Jesus is doing by feeding these 4,000. He's modeling for us what we're supposed to be doing. Matthew 28, verse 19, same thing. We know this as the Great Commission. 
we've been commissioned, church, to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them like we did last week in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the result of that, what Paul writes in Galatians 3, verses 26, 27, and 28, for you are all, all of us, are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of us have been baptized and have been clothed with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile or Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. All of us are one in Christ, and that's what Christ is modeling in this feeding of the 4,000 Gentile people. Our gracious and loving Lord has extended an invitation to everybody to join His family through faith in Jesus Christ. This invitation is for all because the perfect Christ died for all and His blood covers all of our sin. All of our shame that goes with that sin and all of the guilt that we have because of that sin. His blood covers everything. Can I get an amen? All of us can sit like they did here in Mark chapter 8, like they did in Mark chapter 6. All of us can sit at the feet of Jesus, spend time with Jesus, and be fed by Jesus. We can do that. We can be nothing. We can bring nothing and yet be filled and yet be satisfied and yet have an abundance left over. All of us. That's what Jesus brings. All of us. There were indeed two feedings that we talked about. Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And now here in Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. And there's lots of similarities and lots of differences. We don't have time to unpack them all. Let me just do a few of them. In both occurrences, Jesus showed compassion. In Mark 6, He showed compassion. And in Mark 8, He shows compassion. And He teaches, it says, in Mark 6, if you remember, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion because they were like what? Sheep without a shepherd. So He began to teach them. That's the first thing He did in Mark chapter 6. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So He feeds them the Word of God. And it says here in Mark chapter 8 that they've been with him for three days before they ran out of food. What do you think was going on for three days? He was teaching them, for sure. My point in all that is, will not the Lord then be especially compassionate to those who earnestly seek him, like they did in Mark 6 and like they did in Mark 8? They seek him, and the Lord showed compassion. The Lord shows compassion on us when we seek him. Check out this psalm. It's powerful. Psalm 34, 9 and 10. Oh, oh, fear the Lord, you, His saints. That's you and that's me. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions, they lack and they suffer hunger. But they, you and I who seek the Lord, shall not be in want of any good thing. Can I get an amen for that? Are you in want right now? Do you sit here this morning in want? Seek the Lord. Do you lack in any good thing like this psalm says? Seek the Lord. Do you have emptiness inside? Seek the Lord. If you and I tend to Him, He will tend to us. Jesus has a deep compassion for His sheep in regards to their spiritual needs first and their physical needs second. And that's the first feeding is the, the spiritual needs in Mark 6, and this is the physical feeding in Mark 8. We know this verse, many of us, Matthew 6, 
25 through 34. Turn to your left and, and go there with me to Matthew 6. Powerful, powerful verses. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Christ says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap or gather, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than them? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They don't spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Ouch, you of little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough problems of its own. Each day has enough trouble in itself. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God this morning about what you're seeking first. Be honest with yourself. We need to be honest with ourselves over and over and over again about what we're seeking first besides God in our lives. I'll make you a promise. Whatever it is, if there's anything that you're seeking first before the Lord, whatever it is, this is my promise to you, you will be left hungry. You will be left wanting you will be left lacking, and you will be left empty every time. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? Seek the Lord. We are to seek the Lord. So that was compassion. What about the loaves? How many loaves in the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember? He says it here in Mark chapter 6. There was five loaves to feed 5,000. How many loaves today? Seven loaves to feed 4,000. So that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Like, I like numbers, right? So I'm thinking... Right? And the first one, five loaves fed 5,000. That's uh, 1,000 per loaf. Well, don't they only really need four loaves this time? Right? Like, so if I'm the disciple going, wait, okay, he fed 5,000 with five loaves. We got seven. I say we use four, bag up the other three in case we run into 3,000 people. Right? But that's just me. So that's what would make sense to me. Why not just use four loaves? And I think my thought, the thought that came to me is essentially... We do that sometimes with God. We try to figure God out. And so we ask ourselves, why give more to Jesus than he needs? Why give more to Jesus than what he needs? We often wonder and ask, what's the least I can give? And perhaps we conclude somehow that we are giving more to the cause of Christ than others, and yet the sm their smaller portion yielded more results. Because that's what really happened, right? Well, they gave five and got 5,000. I'm giving seven and only got 4,000. We do all this stuff with God when we want to give, and that's not for us to determine. We just give obediently to whatever it is that God asks us to give and let Him work all that stuff out. What about the baskets? Did you notice there was a difference in the baskets? Look at verses 19 and 20 in Mark chapter, in Mark chapter 8. Did anybody pick up on the baskets in, eight, in, in 19 and 20? Is that where I'm at? 19 and 20? Look at this. When I broke the five loaves back in Mark chapter 6 for the 5,000, how many baskets 
In verse 20, when I broke the seven, how many large baskets? So in Mark 6, they're just baskets. It's a different Greek word. In Mark 8, they're large baskets, different Greek word. The small one is kofinos, K-O-P-H-I-N-O-S. That's the small basket. The, the large basket here in Mark 8 is, is spiris, S-P-Y-R-I-S. In Acts 9.25, we're not going to look at it now if you want to, it's the same basket as mentioned in, Mark, in, in Acts 9.25 is big enough to fit a man. That's how big these baskets are, okay? So, you have 12 smaller baskets left over in Mark 6 for the Jewish people, and you have 7 baskets left over for the Gentile people that are larger. What's the significance? I have no clue. But what's interesting, as you read stuff, and as I do my homework, like I do every week, there's so many different theories or whatever, right? It's mere speculation. So I thought, okay, I'm going to merely speculate myself because I think it's kind of fun on some level, but don't take me, you know, don't take my my word for this, right? We're going to turn off the mic, and then when I'm done telling you my speculation, we're going to turn the mic back on because I don't want you to hold, hold this against me. This is what makes sense to me, that the smaller 12 baskets represent the 12 tribes of Israel as a people group They're just smaller than the rest of the world, right? And the seven larger baskets represent the rest of the world, the seven continents that we all live on. That's just my theory. You can turn the mic back on. You don't have to clap. I didn't spend that much time on that. I did have to confirm that there were seven continents a couple times. Google's Google's my best friend. Anyway, so that's just my take. The other similarity in Mark 6 and in Mark 8 is the people were satisfied. The Jews sat down and were satisfied. The Gentiles sat down and they were satisfied. In both accounts, people are satisfied. When we encounter Jesus, we are sure to leave satisfied with plenty left over. There was leftovers in both cases. When we encounter Jesus, we are sure to leave satisfied with plenty left over. When we don't leave Jesus and we're not satisfied, we're not experiencing Him for who He really is. I think some of us are not leaving Jesus satisfied. And so something's broken down there. We're not experiencing Jesus for who He really is. For when we sit at His feet, we will walk away satisfied and we will walk away with more left than we can ever imagine. And that's a great place to be. So what's our role? What was the people's role in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000? The role is just to follow and to sit at His feet, to just follow Jesus. That's our role. His role is to provide. Our role is to follow. His role is to provide. Our role is to follow. Amen? Some of us know this psalm. I'm not going to tell you the psalm yet. Blank, blank, and know that I am God. What's the first two words? Be still. Does anybody know it any other way? The first two words. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 46.10. That's where it comes from. Our job is to follow. His job is to provide. Look at Psalm 46.10. If you have the NASB, what does it say? Cease striving. We strive and we strive and we strive and we just kind of forget about God. And he says, stop striving. Be still. Stop striving. Be still. Follow me. Let me provide for you. I love that. We strive and we strive and we strive. And God's trying to slow us down and say, just follow. My job is to provide for you. You just follow me. 
this crowd in, in Mark 8 and the crowd in Mark 6 never spoke of leaving, nor did they leave. Though they had no food, they continued to follow. Matthew Henry says this. He says, They that have a full feast for their souls may be content with slender provisions for their body. Amen? In both accounts, the people were, were fed as a flock. In both accounts, that flock stayed together. The flock kept together and were fed in Mark 6 and in Mark 8. In both accounts, we see an abundant provision for God's sheep, for Christ's sheep, because he's the good shepherd. We find an abundant provision for those that abided in the flock. Do you get where I'm going with this? How are we doing being part of the flock of Jesus Christ by being part of the church? I get it. My wife and I have had some, we have a past, right? So we've been in churches and we're not really part of the flock. We're just kind of on the fringes, right? God feeds us in the flock. That's the other thing that we need to take away from Mark 6 and Mark 8, that they were abundantly provided for, they were abundantly satisfied, and he fed them in a flock. That's just what's been modeled from the very beginning. And so some of you might need to really consider that. Like, am I really part of the flock? How can I be a better, bigger, healthier part of the flock? And that might be maybe one of the reasons. If you're not feeling satisfied, that might be one of the reasons why. That's our first stanza, going back to Mark 6. Our second stanza... Verses 11, 12, and 13. So the Pharisees, right? So he goes to Dalmanutha, poor Dalmanutha, because he gets there and then he splits because these Pharisees come out and start to argue with him in verse 11 because they want to see a sign from heaven. They're trying to test or tempt him. And he sighs deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he leaves and goes away. Poor Dalmanutha didn't get to hear that day the gospel message. So sad. That's a whole other thing we don't have time to get into this morning. And so this seems like an odd request that the Pharisees come out and they want to see a sign. They begin to argue with him. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? Didn't you just hear or see what happened? Jesus had been performing many miracles up to this point. But they, what they wanted however, was not an earthly miracle. They wanted something bigger. They wanted a heavenly sign. And I don't know if you remember from Mark chapter 1 when Jesus came and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And the heavens opened and it says, the spirit like a dove came down. Is this the kind of sign they're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, are you paying attention? And then a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Oh, is that the sign you're talking about? It's him and who I am well pleased. Listen to him. They're not looking for a sign. They're just continuing to be rebellious. Because the key is, in verse 11, they just, the, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. We just like to argue with God when we're rebellious. But let me ask you this. What argument could possibly exist that the Lord Almighty needs to win with any part of his creation? None. And I think sometimes we do that. We currently perhaps are arguing with the Lord about something, and he's like, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue with you, right? It's like, Scripture even says it's like the clay that argues with the potter. Like, you can't make me that way. Like, excuse me? Are you talking back? Right? Perhaps you've been arguing with the Lord for some time now, and that needs to stop. I don't know. In the New Testament, the Jews asked Jesus for signs to demonstrate that God had indeed sent him. But Jesus had worked many signs and many wonders to show that he was indeed the Son of God. Mark, uh, uh, John chapter 20 records this as well. 
verses 30 and 31, it says, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which aren't even written in this book. But what has been written is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. But to those who refuse to believe the works that He freely presented, He refused to work additional signs to try to convince them. They would just refuse those as well, right? And it says in verse 12 that this caused Jesus to sigh deeply in His spirit. Sighing deeply means extreme pain, discomfort, or displeasure. If this was a legitimate request by the Pharisees, he would not have responded the way he did. It was not a legitimate question, and it grieved him to hear it. Hear this, church. Jesus, our Lord, is grieved when his preaching and his miracles have zero impact on his listeners. Jesus is grieved when his preaching and his miracles have no impact on his listeners. How are you, how am I grieving Jesus today? Is there some part of our life that's grieving Jesus because we're just not listening? Or we're listening, but we're not letting it have the impact that it should have in our lives. Consider this probability probability that these Pharisees demanded a sign in hopes that he would not actually deliver a sign. Huh? They demanded a sign in hopes that he would not actually deliver one. Why? So that they could continue to live as rebelliously as they had been. And I think we do that sometimes as well. We make these deals with God. Oh God, if you want me to do this or you want me to stop that, then show me a sign. Then if you don't, then I can keep doing what I'm doing. We're, we're so twisted that way, aren't we? I don't really think they wanted a sign. So they can say, well, we asked them for a sign, he didn't give us one, so we're just going to keep doing our thing. We play games like that with God. God won't have any of that. One commentary says that their desire for a sign from heaven was but another evidence of their unbelief. For faith does not ask for signs. True faith takes God at His word and is satisfied with the inward witness of the Holy Spirit when he speaks through his word. So that was our second stanza, our last stanza, verses 14 through 21. Let's skim through those in Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, starting at 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread. They didn't have more than one loaf in the boat. At about the same time, he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began this really weird conversation about the fact that they didn't have bread. That's not even what he meant. And Jesus, aware of this, he goes on with a barrage of eight questions. Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves? Do you not remember when I broke the seven and how many baskets were left over in verse 21? Do you not yet understand? That must have been a tough, tough engagement an encounter with Jesus. That would have been hard if I was on the receiving end of that. To have him ask me eight questions that are basically telling me I'm blowing it. But he gives an order. Let's start off how we started. He gives an order for them to what? 
to watch out. It's an order. It's not an encouragement. It's not a suggestion. He orders them to beware of the leaven. He orders them. He orders us, church, to watch out for false teaching. That's an order from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, leaven is any is a symbol of any evil influence, any, that if allowed to remain can corrupt the mind of a believer or a body of believers. It's the ideas and the teachings at this time of Herod and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that would uh, gradually infiltrate people's minds. And over time, it could and it would penetrate and permeate every part of people's thinking, for that's what leaven does. It goes and spreads everywhere. The leaven of the Pharisees is too much to get into, but one of them was that Jesus is not actually the Messiah. Oh, bad, bad, bad call. That's not good leaven. Right? The leaven of Herod. Remember that Herod, who he thought Jesus was? Do you remember? John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist a good guy or a bad guy? He's a good guy. So we want to compare Jesus to good people. Oh, Jesus is a good man. He's like John the Baptist. No! He's not just a good man. He is God in the flesh. He's our Messiah. The significant thing about leaven is its power in small doses to just spread into everything. If any sort of false teaching got into the hearts and into the minds of the disciples... It would infect them and pollute the truth that Jesus was giving them to spread about himself and about his kingdom. And so it's dangerous, and so he orders them to get that stuff out. And so it begs the question for you and I, how much of God's truth is being infected or polluted in your life today? How much of God's truth is being uh, 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 polluted or infected in your life today? And furthermore, the bigger question is, how do you measure that? If God's word is being polluted and and infected in your life, how do you measure it? How do you go about measuring it? There's lots of ways. And it's the same old basic stuff, right? You've got to be in his word to see if your life measures up with his word. You've got to be on your knees asking the Lord to show you you know, what pride and, and, or lack of humility you have in your life to say, God, what am I holding on to? You need brothers and sisters in Christ to say, hey, I think I'm doing fine, but am I not doing fine? Is there some leaven in my life that I'm not paying attention to? And of course, just relying on the Holy Spirit to convict us and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us. Look at Galatians 5, 7, 8, and 9. It's to the right of the book of Mark. After 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll find Galatians. Leaven is dangerous stuff, church. Galatians 5, 7, 8, and 9. And Paul writes to this church. He says, church, you were running well. What happened? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from God, from Him who calls you. A little leaven, church, leavens the whole lump of dough. So Jesus orders us, church, to keep the leaven out. What leaven would Jesus want to chat with you about today? What leaven would Jesus want to chat with you about today? And if you're clear on that, you need to have a conversation with Jesus about that. What kind of chat would that look like? Would it even be a chat at all? If he shows you the leaven he wants you to remove, what kind of conversation are you going to have with Jesus about that? Forgive me. I repent. Please take that from me. It's not much of a conversation. It's really more of a confession. But they miss it in verse 16, Mark 8, 16. They miss the whole thing about the leaven. 
they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. It's like, my goodness, we're back to the bread. That's where those three loaves would have come in handy, right? See, that's where we got to... Anyway, silly. Why were they so prideful and fearful not to clarify what Jesus meant by the leaven? We do that. We go down this path and we have discussions and we don't clarify what God has for us when He directs us. And they immediately distrust their Lord. And they start worrying about His ability to make more bread. Like, where were they? Right? They distrust their Lord. And they begin to quarrel amongst themselves. And so... Trying to, instead of trying to figure out who was guilty of not bringing the bread, they're all guilty of not trusting the Lord. And perhaps the conversation should have went something like this. When Jesus says, beware of the leaven, they should have said, well, we know it's not the bread. Right? We have one loaf. And if that math that I said earlier works out, one loaf for a thousand people, we're only twelve. We've got plenty of bread. We know it's not the bread. That much we know. So he must be teaching us something else. And sometimes we do that. We don't grasp what God's teaching us. And so we're stuck in this one thing. He's like, what? Like, I'm so not there anymore. Let's go here. This is what I'm trying to show you and teach you. And here's what's really, this was difficult for me. I felt terrible in reading Jesus' questions, his barrage of questions. Look at this. Alvin, I'm going to use Alvin. Imagine that this was Jesus addressing Alvin, starting in verse 17. Alvin. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Alvin, do you not yet see or understand? Alvin, do you have a hardened heart? Alvin, having eyes do you not see? Alvin, having ears do you not hear? Alvin, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves? How many were left over? Alvin, do you not remember when I broke the seven? How many you had left over? Alvin, do you not yet understand? Plug your name in where Alvin's name is. That would be hard. I felt terrible for the disciples at that moment. I think they're trying their best. And Jesus just hits them with eight questions. And they're not questions that we want to have asked of us. Like, are you paying attention? Like, what's going on for you, Alvin? Thanks, Alvin. Let me ask you this. Are you on the receiving end of questions like this from the Lord? Are you on the receiving end of questions like this in Mark 8 from our Lord? Tough questions. Hard. But here's the good news. As we know, as we continue to read Scripture, the disciples eventually get it, don't they? They eventually work it out, don't they? They eventually are able to ask, answer questions like that and say, yeah, we get it. And I'm so grateful. God does that in us. And He's so gracious. He's so patient with us. They eventually get it. And so have many of you, and so will many of us. The issue with the religious leaders, which the disciples were in danger of adopting, is not a lack of bread, but a lack of belief in Christ as the Messiah to provide for their needs. These twelve, did they know certain facts about Jesus? Did they know that he just did the bread thing in Mark 6? Did they know he just did the bread thing there? They knew all these facts about Jesus. And that's commendable. It's good to know some facts. But they had failed to practice their faith when it mattered. They did not bring those facts into practical living, what we call faith. I'm not kidding when I say this. There are so many more people that know more about God's Word, the facts of His Word, than I do. They just, it's, just, it's a reality. 
just not that gifted that way. I, I, I know my way around the Bible pretty, pretty well, but they're just, and I'm intimidated by that if I'm being honest with you. It's hard. It's like, Lord, I don't have enough. I don't have enough loaves in this body to feed this church. But not many of them have I met that have more faith in me. It says they had a hardened heart in verse 17. He says, do you have a hardened heart? And that word means to be insensible. Listen to what I'm saying, church. To be insensible, dull, closed-minded. It makes no sense when we act a certain way, when everything else should, should tell us and indicate that we should be acting another way based on what God's done. It's insensible, incomprehensible, essentially. And there's a couple verses from the Old Testament that I want to key in on before we close. Jeremiah 5, 21. He says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people. You have eyes, but you refuse to see. And you have ears, but you do not. You refuse to hear. It's senseless. It's absolutely senseless. It's not above our grasp. It's not that I'm trying, but I don't get it. No. It makes sense. And you're being senseless. We're being senseless. It's challenging. And then Ezekiel 12, 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. This rebellious house. They have eyes, but they do not see. And they have ears, but they do not hear. Because they are rebellious. When we don't take God at His word, when we don't exercise our faith, when we don't turn those facts into faith, it's just, it, there's an element of it that's senseless and rebellious. And we repent and we move on. And then we repent and we move on. And God loves us and He receives us back. And we stay in the fold and we get fed and we're overflowing. It's powerful. I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, the worship team is going to come back up and close us in a song. And then, of course, the uh, prayer team will be available to my left. You're right. Let me pray. God, we're so grateful to be a church family that embraces your word. But God, we need help. We just need help, Lord. We're so thankful that you offer it abundantly. Lord, help us not to be insensible. Help us not to be rebellious, but to trust you, to be satisfied in you, knowing, Lord, that we will have an abundant left, abundance left over. I'm so grateful, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can wrestle with it and be changed by you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.